as always, just my opinion. Hello, my name is Mark Russick, and you're listening to the Russick Outlook. Thanks for joining us. Uh, today's topic is, can you show me the evidence of Jesus' resurrection? You know, it's a pretty astounding claim that uh, Christians around the world make today, that uh, Jesus was in fact, or is in fact the Son of God, and he was crucified and died and rose uh, or resurrected three days later. So I wanted to look at why so many people believe in it and what evidence is there to support this case. Um, You know, when you consider that, I think the world's population is roughly 7.8 billion and 2.1 billion are consider themselves Christians, Um, about 1.8 billion consider themselves Muslims. So that's over half the world that believe in God. Um, And yet a lot of mainstream science says, you know, that, that, we're, we're here because of human evolution. So I, I, I kind of wanted to contrast the two, look at what does the evidence really show us. Uh, I, and I think it's, you know, it's pretty interesting when you dig down to it. And what I'm trying to do here is uh, possibly go down some roads that you may or may have not considered. Uh, I know there were some surprising things as I started to research this out for myself. Because ultimately, you know, whatever conclusion that you reach potentially has an impact on your destination in eternity. So with that in mind, I wanted to break this into two sections. And the first one is what I call Jesus on trial. So we'll look at what is the evidence to support the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And then the second part is called Darwin on trial. And we're going to look at what mainstream science is being taught in the classrooms today in the universities Um, as well as various fields of science and medicine. So with that in mind, I'm going to uh, keep moving on here. I would like to ask you, if you can, if you're listening to this or watching this on social media, uh, whatever the platforms or programs that you're looking, if you can hit the like or subscribe button, would also love to have you join our email list. If you can go to therussicoutlook.com, and again, you know, we're not asking or I'm not asking for anything other than to just keep you informed about uh, upcoming presentations or topics. And at the same time, you know, if there are questions or if there are things that you would like to see researched and you have questions about, that's really what my aim is, is to get to the truth of the matter uh, without bias, without preconceived notions. Um, But again, I will state up front, because of my life's experience and my, um, my, my, my rational brain that, that I believe God gave me. Uh, I, I, I am a Christian, so I will say that up front. But it doesn't mean that I can't look at the sciences or I can't look at the evidence objectively. Because even if I am wrong or if there are things that can sway me one way or another, I'm all ears. Uh, I, I'm, I'm all in. So let's get moving. And first, if we're going to look at the life of Jesus, I, I have this titled as The Validity of the Bible. Um, because so much of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, contains such important information about Jesus. There are many, many scriptures that predict or go uh, or, or, or lay down in, in advance, hundreds and even over a thousand years in advance of things that Jesus would do, predictions or what the Bible calls prophecies. And, uh, and yet... I, and we'll see that a lot of these things did come to pass. 
So I first, you know, that that's really the basic and the foundation for Christians and for Jews alike that, you know, their foundation is is in the Bible, is in is in the scriptures. So what does the Bible show us? How can we validate the legitimacy of the Bible? So the first thing I'm going to ask you, the listener, or if you're watching on video, you know, what or who do you believe in? Or do you believe in anything? Do you have faith in anything? Uh, maybe you're not sure what you believe. Maybe you're a Hindu, an atheist. Maybe you're Jewish, uh, agnostic, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, uh, Scientology, Universalism, folk religions. Um, whatever it is, I just ask that you would keep an open mind to the things that we're going to be looking into today. So first I wanted to, there's two scriptures that jump out. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 states that all scripture is given by divine inspiration of God. Uh, that, that, that's, that's a pretty lofty statement. And then the second is, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here we see that everything that is written, uh, the Word of God is saying that it's been divinely inspired from God as written down uh, from man and, 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 and um, collated or collated uh, into these Old Testament books and New Testament books. And in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, meaning that God and His Word or His Scripture are synonymous with who He is. Um, so in other words, if you want to get to know someone, you spend time with them, you talk to them. And one way that Christianity and Judaism uh, says that one way to get to know the Lord is by spending time in His Word because His Word is uh, a part of His His personality of um it's your way of, of, of engaging with what would be the mind of God. So I say that these are pretty audacious claims. These are pretty bold statements. So, I, you know, let's investigate. Where does the evidence lead us? Can we, in fact, believe these statements that the Word is divinely inspired and the, the Word of God and, and God himself are synonymous with one another? So the first thing that I wanted to look at here, I said the first before, but I, I, I really want to examine the, the Bible. So how did we get the Bible that we read? So if we're going to look into the validity of Jesus and, and we're looking into these books, how did these books come about? So if you're watching this on video, you see that I've got this broken down for the Old Testament. It's what they call the Pentateuch, the first five books or the law, the law of Moses, they'll call it. Uh, there's the books of poetry, history, then there's a section of the major prophets and the minor prophets. Um, and, and all of these books have been put together. So uh, the way that they came about is, let's look at the word canon, uh, which means measuring rod or rule. This is the title that was given to the religious writing that met the exacting standards required for inclusion in the Old, in the Old Testament. So in other words, they've been canonized. They've been poured over by groups of people uh, to, to see whether, in fact, this met their criteria. So this work was completed in Babylon by a council of 120 men with Ezra as president. So for those who may not know, uh, the Jewish people were captured and ha forced to flee Israel, and they were held during the uh, Babylonian Empire. Uh, they were later freed in the Medo-Persian Empire uh, and returned to Jerusalem. But while they were in this Babylonian captivity, they began to put, put together the books. Uh, the intent was to reconstruct the worship and religious life 
of the people after they returned from Babylon. So they, uh, they, they had actually, they had scriptures pointing to the fact that they would soon be, uh, after 70 years, would be leaving uh, their captivity and returning to Israel. And sure enough, that, was, that did happen. There's a gentleman named Josephus. He's a noted Jewish historian. If you look him up online, it's very easy to find. A uh, very credible historian. And one of the things I want to stress here is I wanted to look at sources outside of the Bible. Um, and so he mentions 22 books which this group believes to be divine. But interestingly enough, the list corresponds exactly to the 39 books we have today because many were combined into uh, uh, one book. So, uh, um, so today we have different volumes. In other words, we have First and Second Kings, we have First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, and so forth. Um, so Josephus' research uh, proved out to be exactly what we have today or what we know today. So that's that's really important because you know what they view today as their uh, legitimate canonized sources are what we're looking at today as well. Um, before a book can be canonized, the council demanded the criteria of divine inspiration. And the, the, the way they came about it was, was it written by a prophet or a spokesman of God? Can it be traced back to the time and the place as well as the writer? So they were really poring over this. They were, they were looking at, does this meet the standards? Can, you know, is this, is this writer alive today? Or do we know that he lived or she lived in a certain land? It's worthwhile to note that Jesus and the apostles, this is very important, quoted from the Old Testament over 600 times. And that indicates their approval of the text. So they, to them, they, they looked at the Old Testament writings as being divinely inspired, including Jesus himself. Um, I'm going to jump over, if you're watching this on video to the right, there's something that was called the Septuagint, which means 70 in Greek. And what this basically means is this was a group of people of 70 scholars that were responsible and they were brought to Alexandria, Egypt, to translate the Hebrew Old Testament to the Greek so that this can be shared uh, to the Gentiles and, and around the world in the various languages. But this was the first translation that took place um, into a, a language that could be read and understood by many nations around the world. Uh, the work began around 280 B.C. It was completed 100 years later. This proves the Old Testament was canonized by this time. It's important because when comparing our modern-day Bibles to the Hebrew or Greek translations, there are very few differences, which suggests the Bible has been accurately preserved far better than any other ancient book. And I'm going to show you there's another wonderful reason that, that we can have faith in that. All right. So moving right along, we've looked at how do we get the Old Testament? Well, natural. Next question is how do we get the New Testament? Um, from the start of the early church, they used the Old Testament in their services. And this was true in Jesus' time. When he would go to the synagogue, they would bring out the Old Testament books. So as the New Testament books were completed, they were given the same respect as the prophets or Moses and were used right along with the Old Testament scriptures. So for instance... In 1 Timothy 5.18, the Apostle Paul quotes from Luke 10.7. He cited this as Scripture. And it's, you'll see in a little while how accurate and how important Luke was. He was not only a physician, but he was a noted historian. And 
really highly regarded today uh, around the world as one of the most accurate historians ever. Um, so it was clear that he regarded Luke's gospel as scripture uh, before he wrote that second book of Timothy. Uh, in Second Peter 3.12, he placed his and other apostles' writings on par with the Old Testament prophets. Second uh, Peter 3.15 through 16, he shows his familiar, familiarity, easy for me to say, with Paul's writings and regarded them with the same degree of authority reserved for Old Testament writers. So here you have one of the original apostles, Peter, regarding Paul's writings. You know, Paul obviously came after the fact. Matter of fact, you know, for those who don't know, you know, Paul at, at one point was uh, the arch enemy of the apostles and of Jesus Christ. He was responsible for killing and, and, and torturing many because of what he considered to be blasphemy of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. So this was the common perspective amongst the early church leaders. Uh, we know that the New Testament was completed by the second century. We also know the authenticity of the New Testament can be traced to within 100 years or less of the apostles. That's very, very important. Um, you know, you, you would consider, you know, here I sit at the end of 2020 going into 2021. So, you know, picture books that were written in the early 20th century uh, by, by noted authors. And, and, you know, that's relatively a close period of time that we can know whether they're, you know, books on history or, uh, you know, various accounts of current events at the time, we can trace that back and, and we can have some comfort in, in the truth that they would represent. And this was the case here as well. Um, and this also included the book of Revelation, which was written by John on the uh, island of Patmos in AD 95. This was given instant acceptance by the early church as a fitting conclusion to the library of God. So they, you know, they all agreed that the Old Testament would start with Genesis, and they all agreed that the New Testament and the conclusion of the Bible would end with Revelation, and they did that pretty quickly. So something interesting happened uh, about 100 years after that. Constantine became the first emperor in world history to accept in, uh, Christianity. He professed to be a Christian and a follower or a disciple of Jesus Christ. In A.D. 312, he authorized Eusebius, known as the father of church history, to prepare 50 copies of the scriptures to be used in the churches. The question naturally arose, which books? So through his research, it became obvious because the 27 books of the New Testament have been universally accepted since the early days of the church. The test of canonicity uh, were very much the same as the Old Testament. So just as what we looked at, that criteria is still the same. Was this written by an apostle or, or a close associate? Uh, does it agree with the doctrine of the Lord and his apostles? Is it genuine in regard to the facts, the dates of the writings of the authors? And was this accepted in the early church? So there's 27 New Testament books that we use today were formally ratified by the Council of Car Carthage in A.D. 397, which had only recognized the books that had already been used by the church for over 300 years. So this was just the formal recognition of what the early church was using all along. And again, if you're looking at this on video, I've got this broken down into the four books of the gospel. Book of Acts, which is what I would consider really the beginning of the New Testament, uh, then you have all of Paul's writings, uh, letters, 
to, to Timothy, to Titus, to Philemon. Uh, there's the book of Hebrews, um, and then uh, the epistles, letters of James, Peter, John, Jude, and eventually the conclusion with the book of Revelation by the Apostle John. So I'm going to jump over to what is called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I find this to be incredibly, incredibly important as far as the validity of what we know and what we read today and the accuracy of the Bibles. Uh, For those who don't know, this was a series of scrolls that were discovered uh, in Israel in, I think, 1947. Uh, There's an interesting story to it where it was a scribe threw a a rock in a cave and he heard the shattering of of like a clay pot. Um, He was a goat herder. He was trying to get his goats. Um, So anyway, that led to the discovery in these what's called the Qumran Caves of all of Old Testament writings that were sealed, um, many, many different books, some of them complete, um, multiple copies. Uh, for instance, I believe there's 22 copies of uh, the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms, um, close to it. Don't, don't hold me to that exact number. But uh, the, the point of this is all of the Old Testament books were discovered here, with the exception of Lamentations and Esther. And when they analyzed these books, they found that they were within 98% accurate to what we know or what we read the Bible today. Um, the, these books were, uh, these, these scrolls, I should say, were dated between 200 B.C. to 68 A.D. And this is, this is scientific sources. This is an archaeological discovery. This is not a, a Christian or a Jewish uh, discovery. This was... Uh, thoroughly uh, um, analyzed by various dating methods, including uh, paleographic scribal carbon-14. This was a tremendous discovery, and what it later did was validated a lot of the archaeological and historical accounts that were uh, uh, notated and documented in the Old Testament. Uh, So that's very, very important. So we can know with confidence that the Bible, because a lot of times people say, well, you know, how do we know what we're reading today is really what they intended? Well, we do know, um, and, and it's been proven. And, and really, if you think about um, these Essene uh, uh, tribe, or this, the, the, these people who were copying this, this information and translating it for us, uh, and I also should note that this was written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, um, but this Jewish sect took such great... Um, uh, a, a great degree of time and harmony and working with one another and preserving these scrolls so that the word of God would be, would be carried on. Um, and they could have been in danger. Uh, there was lots of enemies. Uh, you know, you picture yourself back in these times, a couple thousand years ago, um, you know, middle of the mountains, middle of the desert. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty impressive when you think about, how all of a sudden, you know, 1947, we come to discover these books, and, and really it's, it, it's, it's pretty astounding. Um, so the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, validates the accuracy of what we see in the Old Testament writings. So let's kind of look at it, the practicality of the book of, of, of the Bible. You know, this 
doesn't show up on on the top selling charts or the top selling books that you see on the New York Times bestsellers or the Amazon bestseller, but it is in fact the number one best selling book of all time every year. Uh, because it's all time every year, they've removed it from the bestseller list, um, which you know that that that's pretty amazing in itself. So if you're looking at this on video, um, I've got some different pictures here for you to consider. Uh, there's Jewish soldiers who have, um, you know, what's they actually wear a strap of a book on their head. It's it's called the uh, the Teflon, which is the patriarch, the Pentateuch. I'm sorry, uh, the the uh, five Old Testament um, scrolls. They're sitting there. They're reading Bibles before they engage in war, before they go to battle. Uh, they have their their prayer cloths on their shawls. And uh, I have another picture of uh, an Asian woman and people who are just thrilled uh, because they have their copies of the Bible. Then there are the people who burn and ban the Bible, and that's been going on for thousands of years. So, and then I've got a gentleman just reading it the way many people do today. And so what uh, what I've written here is look at the history of mankind's reaction to the Bible. No other book has been so loved or so hated by so many. This has been adored and read by billions of people over the centuries. Think about that. Easily making it the best-selling book of all time. What is even more remarkable is how it stood the test of time because it survived through persecution. Remember, many have tried to burn it, to ban it, to outlaw it. Why is that? Uh, From the Roman Empire to present-day communist and Islamic-dominated countries, no other book has been so scrutinized and vilified. What book on religion, philosophy, psychology, and classical or modern times has evoked such venom and skepticism, such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet? Yet it remains loved, studied, and read by hundreds of millions of people today. Every day, millions of people are reading the Bible. Why is that? Thousands of years later, they're still reading this book. This alone warrants a closer look at its value to mankind. So I wanted to just, I want, I, I have a page up here, if you're seeing this on video, it's called Our Bible. How do you explain this? And again, just kind of put on your common sense hat for a second. Take away any preconceived notions you may have, but just think about this. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year span. It includes 66 books written by 40 authors from every walk of life. They included kings, military leaders, peasants, physicians, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, shepherds. Some of the more uh, easily identified characters would be Moses. Moses was a political leader and judge. David, he was a king. He was a poet. He was a musician and a warrior. You know, most people don't realize this, but he's largely responsible for the book of Psalms. Um, Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Um, and, you know, Joshua, if you look at it, Joshua was, was a man's man. He, he was tough. Uh, Nehemiah, cupbearer to a pagan king. Daniel was a prime minister. Uh, Solomon was a king and a philosopher. Luke, I, I noted earlier, physician and historian. Peter was a fisherman. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, he was a rabbi. And Mark was Peter's secretary. 
But from Genesis through Revelation, these subjects were were treated with an, an amazing degree of harmony, and yet they still maintain one single unfolding theme, God's redemption of human beings. The paradise lost in Genesis becomes the paradise regained in Revelation. The leading character throughout claims to be the one true living God made known through Christ Jesus. So throughout the Bible, the emotions, the moods, they run through the entire human spectrum, such as peaks of joy, valleys of sorrow and despair, times of certainty and conviction, and yet others there is during times of confusion and doubt. Uh, it was written in a variety of literary styles, poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, uh, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, uh, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, and allegory. Uh, it also does not shy away from volatile or controversial, sub- controversial subjects, which includes, easy for me to say, marriage, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, adultery, obedience to authority, truth-telling, lying, character development, parenting, the nature and revelation of God. Now, this is perhaps, to me, one of the most astounding things. Consider the symmetry of these books. These writers didn't know one another. They hadn't seen one another. It spanned over 1,500 years, and yet they all wrote contributions to what this one book we know today. How is that symmetry possible by humans? It's not. The the central theme and message is written with uncanny detail from Genesis straight through to Revelation. It's it's like a it's like a beautiful song or a tapestry that's weaved beautifully and, and, and it covers all of this wide variety of subjects. And yet all of these authors, all of these books are over hundreds and hundreds of years, yet that still remain that the in, into this one unfolding theme. So by any stretch of the imagination, any mathematical formula you can come up with, it is impossible. It is statistically impossible. This could never happen. Uh, this was also covered in three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, written in the three languages that I mentioned earlier, Hebrew, Arab, and Greek. So I just want to very quickly jump to historical prophecy. So a prophecy is... Um, things that were um, predicted, if you will, uh, before an event would take place, and we can look at things that took place with uncanny detail. So there are over 1,000 prophecies in the Bible, and today we know that 668 of them have been fulfilled. None has been proven false, not one. Um, And there's a number of prophecies. Well, what about the other 332? Uh, but there are a number of these that have yet to come to pass. doesn't mean they're not going to happen. I can tell you that if, if the Lord says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the decree of Cyrus. In about 700 B.C., uh, Isaiah names Cyrus as the king who will allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. At this time, there was no king named Cyrus, and the temple was in Jerusalem, and it was built. So this didn't make any sense. But yet, more than 100 years later, they were, into, uh, they were c- captured by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Uh, the Jews living in Jerusalem were either killed or, or captured. 
And in roughly 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians. I mentioned this earlier, the Medo-Persian Empire. Shortly thereafter, a Persian king named Cyrus issued a formal decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. How is that possible? So this decree is confirmed by secular archaeology in the form of a stone cylinder that details the many events of Cyrus' reign. So again, these are historical accounts. These are archaeological discoveries outside of the Bible, outside of Christianity, outside of Judaism, including the decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So let's recap this for a second. Isaiah predicts that a man named Cyrus, who would not be born for a hundred years, would give a decree to rebuild a city and a temple that was standing and fully active at the time. But yet, sure enough, in that hundred years, it was destroyed and they did have to come back. Um, I'm going to very quickly go through, there's an example in the city of Tyre. In 586 BC, uh, the prophet Ezekiel predicts the fall of mainland Tyre to the Babylonian empires of Nebuchadnezzar. This is in chapter 26. It further describes a siege against the island fortress of Tyre uh, hundreds of years later. This further elaborates how the invaders would tear down the ruins of mainland Tyre and throw them into the sea. And this is what it says. They would scrape her dust from her and leave her at the top of a rock. They will lay your stones, your timber, and your soil in the midst of the water. I will make you like the top of a rock. You shall be a place for spreading nets. So later on, we go, we go to discover that uh, the Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica states, after a 13-year stage, siege by Nebuchadnezzar, Tyre made terms and acknowledged the Babylonian uh, captivity. Upon breaking through the city gates, they found it nearly empty. Most had moved it by ship to the island, fortified the city a mile away. The mainland city was destroyed, which was Ezekiel's first prediction, but the island city remained powerful for several hundred more years. So prediction didn't exactly fully come to pass yet. Fast forward a bit. Alexander the Great laid siege to the island fortress in 332 B.C., his army destroyed the remains of the mainland Tyre and threw them into the sea. As Alexander's army constructed a causeway to the island, they scraped even the dust from the mainland city, leaving only a bare rock. Alexander the Great reduced Tyre to ruins in 332 BC. The large part of the site, this, and this is interesting, historian Philip Myers went to this area, and this is what he reported. The larger part of the site of this once great city is now as bare as the top of a rock, a place where the fishermen that still frequent the spot spread their nets to dry. This is exactly what Ezekiel wrote would happen. And we see this exact example if you go there today. There's many, many different examples of this. And if you're watching on video, you're not going to see this. But I just wanted to quickly mention um, the book of Daniel elaborates uh, about what's called 69 weeks of years or, or a, a period of 490 years and that there's got to be um, 483 years would, would come to pass. Then there would be a break uh, before what we know as the seven-year tribulation. I just want to read something that, that Daniel wrote here in 925. He says, So you are to know and understand from the issuance of the command 
to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, that's Jesus, the anointed one, the prince. There will be seven weeks of years and 62 weeks of years. It will be built again with a city, plaza, and moat, even in times of trouble. So history records that first seven weeks of years, seven times seven is 49, there was the decree of uh, Xerxes to restore and rebuild Jerusalem on March 14th, 445 B.C., and Jerusalem was rebuilt seven weeks of years, and 396 B.C. it was completed, exactly as the uh, prophet Daniel said. And then, but you notice he said there would be these 49 years, and seven times seven, and then 62 weeks of years, 62 times seven, is 434. So if you, 49 plus 434, you can get out your calculator, but trust me, it comes to 483. So he says from that decree that the coming of the Messiah would enter Jerusalem 483 years later. There's an interesting work done by, it's called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson from Scotland Yards. This was back in the uh, er early um, uh, 19th century. But anyway, he did a great, great study, and this goes back to um, researching the Hebrew calendars. Anyway, he was able to um, isolate the exact date that Jesus entered. Many people know as he entered the city, um, and the Psalms were laid down, and he entered on a colt or a donkey. But he shows and goes through great detail that it was exactly 483 years to the day to the day from when this first uh, decree was announced by Xerxes to Jesus returning um, that, you know, you, you, again, you can't make this stuff up. Um, there is another uh, theologian from Dallas. I forget his name off the top of my head. I have this accounted for in another uh, study on, on the book of Daniel, uh, which is really centers on the tribulation. Um, but it, it, I go into much more detail of the research there. This other gentleman, I, I will say, thought that there was a year difference the way he did his math. But nonetheless, you know, it's still within the year. Um, I personally tend to, to go with what Sir Robert Anderson was able to conclude uh, when Jesus says, I'm going to be uh, within 483 years. He's to the day. He's just, that, that's just my own personal opinion. But anyway, uh, you know, you've got all of this validity uh, and value to it. Um, there, there's other things, too. Uh, I, I go in here about some things that happened in the city of Samaria. So if you're watching this on video. Um, but <clears throat> there was something that's called the scientific probability analysis. Um, in, a, in a classic book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner reviews some of the historical prophecies, prophecies of the Old Testament including Babylon, Tyre, Samaria, uh, Gaza, Ashkelon, Jerusalem, Palestine, Moab, Ammon, and Petra, Edom, which is uh, modern-day Jordan. Stoner uses peer-reviewed mathematical analysis and principalities of probability to conclude, and the, 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 this was called Science Speaks and Evaluation of Christian Evidences. And in, here it says, no human being has ever made predictions which hold any comparison to those who have considered and had them accurately come true. 
the span of time between the writing of these prophecies and their fulfillment is so great that the most severe critic cannot claim that the predictions were made after the events happened. So he used this very strict scientific analysis to break down the probability, the mathematical probability of these prophecies actually coming to pass. So independent researcher um, from the American Scientific Affiliation, gentleman named H. Harold Hartzler, Ph.D. Secretary Treasurer of Goshen College, he wrote in evaluating the methods that Peter Stoner used to break this down. This is his, his quote. The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the executive council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical analysis included is based upon the principles of probability, which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. So here he breaks down, Stoner breaks down the probability or the impossibility of these things actually coming to pass, and he uses um, scientific methods that have been validated by an outside source. So I just want to stress these things have been uh, looked at by many, many resources outside of the Bible. Next, I want to go into what I call Jesus on trial. And if you're looking at this, uh, I have a painting that was done by a friend of mine. Uh, and, and so often today we see that, that Jesus is put on trial because where is the proof of the resurrection? Uh, what about other paths to God? Uh, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, and, and so forth. And this painting kind of depicts uh, a modern-day courtroom with the accuser, which would be Satan, the accuser of the brethren, and the people who are uh, in, in there, the jury, are really your everyday people from all walks of life because uh, the message of the gospel and the message of salvation is for everyone. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just for uh, the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, it's, it's for everybody. So this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with. A, a very good friend of mine, um, Faith McCollum, uh, if, you, if you're interested, you can reach out to me. She's a wonderful artist, but she did this painting. Uh, and uh, anyway, I just kind of want to go a little bit deeper now with what I call just on trial. So because we're talking about prophecies, and I've, I've gotten so much into that, I, I wanted to look at what some of the prophecies of these Old Testament writers said about the coming Messiah or Jesus. Um, and I, I, if, if you're looking at this on video, you see this here. But first, the, f- the first thing is from Luke 24, 44, he said, this is what I told you what, while, I, and this is Jesus speaking, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So this is Jesus saying that they wrote about me in the Old Testament, and it must be fulfilled. So I'm going to quickly go through some of these. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah, Matthew, and Luke. 
he would be born in Bethlehem. We know this to be factually evident. And and how do you predict what city this person will be born in? Yet Jesus, we know, was born in Bethlehem. He would be heralded as by a messenger of the Lord, which was John the Baptist. This was Old Testament, Isaiah and Malachi. New Testament accounted for about John was in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He would perform miracles uh, from Isaiah to Matthew. He would preach the good news, Isaiah and Luke. He would first present himself as king for 173,880 days. We just talked about that in the book of Daniel, from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Daniel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, He would enter Jerusalem as riding on a donkey, Zechariah. We know this came to pass with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, He would die a humiliating and painful death. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and accounted for in all four books of the Gospels. His hands and his feet would be pierced. This was the the crucifixion, which at the time, uh, no, no, you you didn't have this. Uh, this was a this was a Roman form of uh, execution, which, when the Book of Psalms was written, was not even known. Uh, but yet this came to pass, um, Psalm twenty two sixteen, And then there are crucifixion accounts, again, all four books of the Gospels. His executioner would cast lots for his clothing, Psalm 22, again, accounted for in the book of John. None of his bones would be broken in his execution. We know that. It's predicted in Psalm 34. John nineteen thirty two bears that out. His side would be pierced, Zechariah and John. He would die with the wicked and be buried in a rich man's tomb, Josephus' tomb. Predicted by Isaiah, came to pass as documented in the book of uh, Matthew. The Messianic prophecies are a collection of over 300 predictions in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures about the future Messiah. Uh, These predictions were written by multiple authors in numerous books and it spanned over approximately 1,000 years. Some of these authors, I just want to give you a, a little bit of, of reference here. Isaiah began his ministry around 740 B.C. Micah was active in the 8th century B.C. Uh, Malachi, first half of the 5th century. Daniel, end of the 6th century. Zechariah, 6th century. Uh, early chapters in Psalms was early 11th century B.C. Uh, Matthew was written about 85 A.D., the book of Mark about 70 A.D., Luke between 85 to 95 A.D., and John between 90 to 100 A.D. And some of these accounts came in in, uh, the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. Uh, Remember Luke, because I'm going to close with him. Um, And this was between uh, 70 to 90 A.D. So here you have this huge variety of predictions that came to pass with uncanny detail written in the Old Testament. We've, we've gone through how we came about these Old Testament. We know how it stood the test of time. We know about the accuracy of these books. We know about the historical validity uh, of these things coming to pass. So, you know, it, I, I started off with this is really about the resurrection because I'm going to read here from what the Apostle Paul wrote. In 1 Corinthians, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So right there, you know, Paul is saying point blank, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, this is all a waste of time. 
everything that we're talking about, this every this move of God, here we are with uh, close to 2.1 billion people believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, if that didn't come to pass, we're all at a waste of time. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says most, oh, this was interesting. I'm, I'll read it from the top. I'm sorry. For what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he raised no more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same—I'm not raised. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So here, you know, Paul is saying that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to all of these different people, even as many as 500 in one point. And he's kind of saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to them, because most of these people are still alive. Go down the block, go to Avenue A, go to Smith Lane, go to uh, Israel Place or, or you know, whatever. They're, they're there. Um, we know that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, to two other women in Matthew. Uh, to Cleopas and his companion, to 11 disciples and others in, in Luke 24, 33 through 49, uh, to the 10 apostles with the exception of Thomas in John 20, 19 through 23. Uh, John 21, 1 through 14, he appears to seven apostles. Uh, to the disciples he, in, in Matthew 28, to the apostles, including Thomas at a separate time, this is the doubting Thomas that he had to put his finger on his side and show him the holes in his hands and his feet. This is accounted for in John 20, 26 through 30, and to the apostles on the Mount of Olives. Um, he, he also, you know, the first one, the first of the apostles that he appeared to, actually, I'm going to save that. <clears throat> Remember that for a second, because it's going to come up here. So I wanted to get some other people who were, uh, outside of the realm of, of, of the Bible, some outside of the Bible and accounted for in the Bible, but also some non-believers, some pretty lofty um, intellects as well. Um, Simon Greenleaf, if you're looking at this on video, top left, he was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. He authored the three-volume text, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which is still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature of the legal procedure. In other words, he wrote uh, the standards by which we apply the Supreme Court today. He literally wrote the rules on the evidence of the entire United States legal system. Interestingly enough, he was an atheist. He accepted a challenge by his students to investigate the evidence for Christ's resurrection. After six years of personally collecting and examining the evidence based upon the rules of evidence that he established for our Supreme Court today, Greenleaf became a Christian, and he wrote the classic Testimony of the Evangelist. I'm going to quote from him in, in, in this book. He said, Let the gospel's testimonies be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party the witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. The result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Testimony of the evangelist, the gospels examined by the rules of evidence. So what I wanted to talk about afterwards, too, is James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, 
was a skeptic. He did not believe that Jesus was was in fact the Christ. He didn't believe that he was the Son of God. Um, and interestingly enough, it actually says that he, Jesus appeared to him first of all the apostles. Uh, his eyewitness of a post-resurrection ex- his experience is reported within five years of Jesus' crucifixion. After personally interacting with the risen Christ, James became a leader of the new church in Jerusalem. So here he was a skeptic. He didn't believe. He's like, I've known Jesus all my life. I don't believe he's the son of God. And Jesus chose him, his half-brother, to be the first of all the apostles to appear to. My own two cents, that was one interesting conversation they must have had. Um, The apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Uh, Most scholars agree that Paul was a skeptic and a persecutor of the early Christian church. Remember, he was torturing. He was going after these people as criminals. Uh, He experienced a post-resurrection experience. This caused him to immediately change after personally interacting with the resurrected Christ, and he willingly suffered and died for his testimony. There's another gentleman, a famous British lawyer, uh, Sir Lionel Luckhoo, from 1914 to 1997. He's considered one of the greatest lawyers in British history. He is recorded in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's most successful advocate with 245 murder acquittals. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth twice. And he wrote a book called The Question Answered, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? This is what he wrote in this book. I humbly add I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by the proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Pretty lofty statement. Getting near the end here, closing up. Here are some historical and archaeological corroborations outside of the Bible, some additional ones from the time or right around the time of Jesus. So the first one uh, I have on the left is, is Cornelius Tacticus. He's considered a great historian of ancient Rome um, from 55 to 120 AD. And I've got some different writings, but uh, what's, what's highlighted on the left, it, it says, this leaves no doubt that Christians existed in 64 AD. In addition, they faced hideous persecution for their belief in Christ. Tacticus writes the Christians were covered in animal flesh and turned over to wild dogs to be eaten or hung on crosses and set aflame. Nero offered his palace gardens with guests to display these heinous acts of evil. So Nero was going around and arresting these Christians and then bringing them to a garden, covering them with blood and subjecting them to uh, death by wild animal or, or crucifixion. Uh, we mentioned Flavius Josephus, uh, his writings from the Antiquities book, uh, 18, uh, cover the man named Jesus. His followers, and this is, this is um, Josephus, his followers experienced an eventual order of execution by means of crucifixion from Pilate. He further writes about the resurrection and that perhaps he was the Messiah as the prophets wrote about. 
He also writes in detail about the execution of John the Baptist and the stoning to death of the Apostle James from the acts of joint from the acts of joint conspiring between Roman authorities and the Sanhedrin priests, which is accounted for in the Book of Acts. Pliny the Younger, Roman governor of uh, Bithynia, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the northern Turkey. Um, he writes, the writings speak of Christianity spreading throughout the Roman Empire, Empire, and it addresses the procedure for persecuting followers of this superstition. It also mentions Christ three times as the center of Christianity and describes Christian practices, including the worship of Christ, as to a god. Uh, Suetonius Secretary and historian and historian historian uh, to Hadrian, Emperor of Rome from 1117 to 1138 A.D. Uh, regarding Emperor Claudius, and this is important because this is a historical account outside of the Bible, but it's also documented in the Bible. As the Jews were making constant disturbances disturbances at the instigation of Christus or Christ, he Claudius he expelled them from Rome. And what do we read in the book of Acts? There he met a Jew named Aquia, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, just as what Suetonius had said. Paul went to see them, it says. And then finally, uh, there are some rabbinical accounts of his crucifixion on the eve of Passover in Jerusalem, um, and that miracles accompanied him, although because this was written by rabbis, they refer to this as sorcery. But nonetheless, it gives a full account of Jesus acting and claiming to be the Son of God and performing miracles, or as they say, acts of sorcery. So here you've got this abundance of resources, uh, intellects, looking at it from a historical perspective of the time of Jesus, other intellectuals analyzing the evidence, um, some really not not believers, and they wanted to disprove uh, the, the validity of Jesus and the resurrection. So here I have uh, just two more slides, and, and we'll wind this first section down. Um, Luke 1, 3 through 4. Uh, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So he, grow, he wants to go to painstaking detail to make sure everything he is writing uh, is taken into account. So uh, there's a, a gentleman named Sir William Ramsey. He was an atheist who later turned out to be, turned to be a Christian because of Luke. Uh, he, he was considered one of the greatest archaeologists of all time. He made it a mission to set out to disprove the Bible by finding the physical evidence to disprove the details in the book of Luke and Acts, because Luke is considered to be the author of the book of Acts. So he he goes out about one of his life's missions is, I'm going to disprove the Bible, I'm going to disprove the accuracy of Christ, because I'm going to shoot down Luke. After years of, of field study, he completely reversed course from the follow, with, with the following statement. He writes, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he is possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed along the greatest of all historians. 
This is written in the bearing of recent discovery on the trustworthiness of the New Testament. Sir William Ramsey. Famous historian A.N. Sherwin writes, declares, in all, Luke names 39 countries, 54 cities, nine islands, not one error. In the Baker Encyclopedia uh, of, of Apologetics, this was documented. Um, then there's a Dr. John McRae, who is a professor of New Testament and archaeology. Uh, for Acts, the conference, this is uh, his quote, for Acts, the confirmation of his historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject historicity must now appear absurd. The general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as a historian. He's erudite. He's eloquent. His Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man. And archaeological discoveries are showing over and over again that Luke is accurate in what he has to say. This was uh, quoted in The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel from John McRae, again, that, that professor that I spoke about from uh, Wheaton University in, in Illinois. So the last thing I'd like to, for you to consider is the apostles and the death and the murder and the brutal executions of how they died because of they confessed Jesus to the very end. And think about these people, you know, here they are upwards of 70, 80, 90 years later, and they're still maintaining the authenticity of the gospel that they saw Jesus or they testified uh, to the accuracy that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and rose from the dead. Um, I've got a bunch of different examples here if you're watching this on video. James, the brother of uh, Jesus, was beaten and stoned at age 94, eventually had his brain, brains beat out. Peter's brother, Andrew, was arrested and crucified upon arriving at Edessa. The two ends of the cross were fixed transversely in the ground, hence the name St. Andrew's Cross. So if you look up St. Andrew's Cross, uh, you'll see what I'm talking about there. Luke, he was hung to death on an olive tree by an idolatrous priest in Greece. Paul's face was so dramatic in the face of his killers in Rome, he was privately executed by sword under Nero. They couldn't even look at him, uh, so they had to take him away. Stephen, as we know in, in the book of Acts, was stoned to death in 34 AD because of his confession. Peter was taken to Rome uh, and crucified but he wanted to be crucified upside down because he said he's not worthy to be crucified as, as Jesus was. James, son of Zebedee and the elder brother of John, was killed under Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. Philip, disciple from Bethsaida in Galilee, was scourged, thrown in prison, and crucified under Halopius in Phrygia in 54 AD. Jude, brother of James, was crucified in Edessa in 72 AD. Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and then beheaded. Thomas was put to death by sword in India from pagan priests. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria in front of Serapis, their pagan idol. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people... Oh, I, I said that already. I, <laughs> if you're watching this on video, I have this written twice. Sorry about that. Jude, brother of James, was crucified in Edessa in 72 AD. And again, I have that twice, so I apologize. And, you know, that's, that's the beauty of just doing it live on the fly. Um, 
But at any rate, you know, I, I just, oh, and last, last, let me not forget the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation. John was ordered to Rome by Ephesus, where he was cast in a cauldron of boiling oil. Only by miracle he escaped completely unharmed. So here you have John, that, you know, the size of a body, he's put into a vat of boiling oil and nothing happens to him. So imagine the faces on these people watching this. So Demotian later banished him to the island of Patmos where he penned the book of Revelation. He is the only apostle to escape a violent death. Uh, He died a natural death on, on the island of Patmos. Uh, and then also there was an account in 34 AD of 2,000 Christians suffered martyrdom uh, during the riots in, in Jerusalem. So, you know, what I'm getting at is uh, you, you, you've just got so many different accounts of people validating the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then here you have all of these people still standing to their conviction and willing to die for a man who was crucified at times 70, 80, 90 years later, and they still confessed. So to me, if you, if you examine all of this evidence, and, and there's more, but this is what I wanted. This is kind of the highlights that stuck out to me. So hopefully this gives you some um, comfort in the fact that the Bible was written uh, with painstaking accuracy, sacrifice, torment at times, um, and, and the, these accounts have been validated uh, historically, uh, archaeologically, uh, scientifically. Um, so, you know, and, and by, uh, you know, accounts, many accounts outside of the Bible. So hopefully this gives you food for thought if, you, if you're not a believer. Um, and, and if you are, hopefully this just gives you some more information that um, helps multiply your faith even more than what you've already been given. Um, so that, that, that's it. So I just wanted to uh, close, and I wanted to thank you. And again, if you're watching this or listening to this on social media, if you could hit the like button uh, or the subscribe, and we would love to uh, have you join the Russick Outlook email list. Any questions, you can email russickoutlook at gmail.com. So thank you very, very much. I appreciate your time. I know this was a lot of information. Uh, but I hope it helps. There's going to be a part two where we're going to investigate what is the evidence to, to support uh, evolution and mainstream science as we know it today. And what does that have to say? Because that really kind of flies in the face of contradiction to the accounts of the Bible and the resurrection uh, of Jesus. Okay, thanks very much. I appreciate your time. God bless. Bye-bye.